Uh, we're going to be in Acts 17 this morning. Do you, do you identify with the scream? Anybody in here identify with that scream? All right, just a few of you? Good. All right. That's good. That's awesome. All right, Acts 17. We're just going to, uh, we're going to really just power through uh, a lot of scripture today. We're going to stay, really, we're going to stay uh, in most of this passage here. Uh, we're going to be uh, in, we're going to do verse 16 um, through the end of, of the chapter. Uh, I just wanted to, this just has really resonated with me in the last, uh, last weeks uh, for several reasons, and, uh, but I'm just going to just preach through verse by verse. Uh, so that's, that's kind of how this is going to work this morning. But um, what, what this is going to be centered around is, is Paul's uh, encounter with the people of Athens. Um, and we're going to talk about it a little bit, but it's a really strange culture of, uh, of really high level of thinking, right? This is a, a Greek society, so um, lots of emphasis on, um, on the enjoyment of, uh, of life, and uh, the pursuit of knowledge, right? So it's a, very, it's a culture that is fascinated with greater levels of understanding um, and in pursuing the, ple- the immediate pleasures of what, uh, of what life can, uh, can offer you. And so Paul arrives, and it's kind of in this hasty manner, Paul arrives here, uh, and then he just, it seems, it seems like as you just kind of read the transition, it's a, um, a very abrupt entrance into ministry in this city. And so... Um, so we're going to just piece through that. But what I want you to do, and as, as any time you read the scriptures, that you need to be asking yourself some questions. You need to be asking yourself, uh, just, this is just Bible study help, but um, as you read, you need to be going, okay, Holy Spirit, I want to understand what's actually in the text. I want to understand what's actually being written here. I want to understand historically what's going on. Uh, what, are the, what are the words um, actually saying? I want to read the story for what it is. And then uh, this, the second question you should always be asking as you're reading the scriptures is, uh, and Holy Spirit, how does this apply um, to my life? What would you use from this passage that you would, uh, would want to draw out of my life, um, that you would use to give me understanding about my life, about the lives of people around me, about, uh, about my culture? Um, you can, you, that, that's just, those are two just great ways to, uh, to study the scripture. You want to know what's actually going on in the text, but then you also... Uh, want to be asking, okay, now let's read a little bit deeper and figure out what this text um, says about my life. Because uh, if either of those are missing, you can see where uh, the study would be a bit frustrating. If you just understand historically and never apply, it's not going to be any good. But if all you try to do is apply and don't understand historically, you're going to apply incorrectly. Does that make sense? If you just take things out of context and try to apply them to your life, you're going to end up taking things very much out of context. So we want to try to do both of those. Um, so let's just pause for a minute, and let's ask the Lord to do that. Let's ask the Lord for uh, help in understanding what's going on in this passage and, um, and then how it speaks to us. Are you good with that? So just pause for just a few seconds um, and ask the Lord to, uh, to speak. Holy Spirit, we welcome you here and we just ask that you would uh, speak directly from your word. 
God, in this room, there are so many questions about you. There are so many uh, needs. There are so many desires. There are so many uh, specific prayers that have been asked of you. And, uh, and Holy Spirit, you are the only one that can take from your word, uh, divide it, and give to each one as they need. And so we just ask that our pursuit this morning would not be for knowledge, that our pursuit this morning would not be for a greater level of just understanding, but that our pursuit ultimately would be of you and your presence. And we would know that to encounter you uh, is the best thing that could happen to us this morning. And so we seek your voice. I just pray that in this room, all other voices that are not the Holy Spirit would be still and silenced in Jesus' name, and that you, Holy Spirit, would uh, speak freely to our hearts, uh, that you would, uh, you would speak deeply uh, to us, that you would not allow us to leave here the same as we came in, but we ask for transformation to occur across the room. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, smile if you're ready. All right, good. Cool, cool. All right, so the backstory of this is that Paul has been in Thessalonica, um, and we know that, that, um, that the church really flourished in, in Thessalonica, but it was a hard place. Uh, Thessalonica was a difficult place, um, and so in the beginning of chapter 17, uh, we read some of that difficulty. Uh, Paul is, uh, is ministering, and he really stirs up some frustration amongst some Jews there, um, and they seek to chase him out of town. What's cool is this is the question, uh, one of the questions that they ask of, uh, uh, about him, one of the statements that they make about him in verse 6 of chapter 17. It says, and when they could not find him, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities. So Jason had taken these guys in. They were staying with uh, Paul and his team were staying with him. Um, and so they, they couldn't find Paul and, the, and this ministry team. And so uh, they, went, they went for Jason. And, uh, and it says... Um, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Wouldn't that be a great statement to be made about you, right? Wouldn't that be, even, even in their frustration with what Paul uh, and his team were doing, this is, this is the statement that they would make about them, that these are the men that through their preaching, through this gospel, that through this name of Jesus, that the world is literally being turned upside down. These are not people that love them and agree with them. These are people that would rather them go away, and even their confession is that the world is literally turning upside down on what these men um, are preaching. And so that's really the reputation that Paul has at this point. And uh, they, they, it goes on and says, And Jason received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus, which to declare another king other than, um, other than Caesar, to declare someone above Caesar is uh, worthy of death. And they were declaring Jesus, um, Jesus as king. And so uh, they run him out of town. And uh, Paul goes to uh, Berea, in, beginning in verse 10. Uh, he goes to Berea, and these guys are completely, completely different. Uh, what it says about them in uh, verse 11, now these Jews were more noble than those are in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. So basically what was happening is that Paul was preaching the gospel um, there, and because they were such uh, stewards of the word because they examined so closely the word. And I love this because what they would have been examining 
Um, these Jews in Berea, what they would have been examining would be the Torah, right? They would have been examining uh, the Old Testament. And so as their examination, their close examination of the Old Testament proved Jesus to be true. Isn't that cool? So Paul comes preaching Jesus as a Messiah, King Jesus, right? And they, they go, okay, we hear you, but we want to test this against the word, which is a great practice. These are noble men uh, in Berea, and, and they test it against the scriptures, test what Paul is saying, and the scriptures, the Old Testament, proves to be true about Jesus, and it says that many uh, Jews as well as Greeks um, are converted, but here's the deal. Uh, the guys in Thessalonica hear about what is happening in Berea, and it upsets them again. And so they come to Berea and attempt to find, uh, to find Paul, and he has to leave quickly. So the end of verse 15, um, he leaves and goes to Athens. And so he's in Athens, and he's waiting for Timothy and for Silas to come with him. And this is where we're going to pick up and really uh, try to dig in this morning um, he's he's uh, fled quickly. He's in Athens. He's waiting on Timothy and Silas, and he hits the ground, and it says, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So Paul lands in Athens, and just a little a uh, little bit about Athens. Uh, Athens has been compared to like what Oxford, England is now, right? It's a, uh, at this point, it was really past its, uh, past its heyday. Athens wasn't just the, wasn't the pinnacle of learning at this point, uh, but it still had quite a reputation. And, uh, and it was a place of high learning and high understanding. Uh, lots, of, lots of philosophy uh, going on there. It was a very rich city. Um, and, and the value, again, and we'll see this a little bit more later on, the value here was placed uh, on the enjoyment and the pleasure of life now uh, and on the pursuit of understanding, not if you're with me. So this is, this is Athens. And what happens is Paul lands there and he's waiting, but while he's waiting, he begins to understand the culture that he's in. He's never been to Athens. There's no record of him actually ever being to Athens. And after he leaves here, there's no record of him ever going back. This is kind of his, his lone stop in Athens. And he begins to understand the culture there. And what is it that he notices? That it's a city that's full of what? It's a city that's full of idols. The statement that's actually made, it says a city was, was full of idols. And that Greek word really literally means that it was uh, to be under idolatry or swamped in idolatry, right? Does it sound familiar? Again, I said you have to understand the context here, but you also have to be able to uh, contextualize this for our current day. Paul landed in Athens and realized this is a city that is under, meaning oppressed by, swamped, controlled by idolatry. And so because of that, look at verse 17. So it says that, he was, uh, that his spirit was provoked within him, and so he reasoned in the synagogue, right? So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who had happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So here's what what we have to capture really from verse 16, 17, and 18 is that Paul 
uh, he understands the culture that he's in for, you know, to whatever level he actually could understand it. Understand this, though, it was, not a, it was not a fleshly understanding. What did it say in verse 16 was provoked within him? His spirit was provoked within him, right? He didn't just, he didn't just look with fleshly eyes and, and, and see that there, there is idolatry here. He understood the condition of the culture uh, spiritually. You understand that? You ever walked into an environment, ever walked into a place, and you knew, uh, not because of what you just saw, but because of what you, uh, what you felt on the inside, because of what the Spirit of the Lord was saying to you, that this place was a place of oppression. You ever been there? Uh, when I was a youth pastor in Sundown, Texas, there would be many, many, many times I would go into a student's, uh, a student's home, and I'd walk in the home, and the moment we would cross the, the threshold uh, of the doorway, you knew it was a place of oppression. You knew, it was a, you knew it was a place, that environment that that kid was growing up in, you knew it was a place of oppression. And it wasn't just because there was physical abuse or anything like that. Sometimes that wasn't the case. But it was a, pra- a place where the Spirit of the Lord was not welcome. It was a, it was a place uh, where idolatry uh, was heavy. And I don't mean that they had shrines on their, on their mantle. I just mean that they worshipped something other than King Jesus. And the atmosphere is different in places where Jesus is not Lord. Are you with me? It is important for you to discern and understand environments that you're in. This is what launched Paul into preaching. Do you see that? So he was just waiting. Like this, Athens was not a stop for preaching. Athens was a place of safety. He goes to Athens, and because of the spiritual condition of Athens, it draws him into the culture. It draws him into a desire uh, to break the oppression that is uh, in that place because of idolatry. And I hope that you hear that this morning because it's not okay for you just to go, uh, go into places and go, whoa, there's oppression here. I need to leave. What that should do to us most of the time, the first thing it should do is it should draw us into intercessory prayer. We should begin to pray immediately because God has brought you into an environment where he is not worshiped as Lord. And the second thing is it should, it should draw you to fervently begin to engage that culture or that uh, environment for the gospel. See, for Paul, it was a city. For Paul, it was an entire city, but for many of us, it's a home. For many of us, it's a dorm room. For many of us, it's a classroom. I don't know, you guys, I don't know what, um, you know, at SFA, sometimes it's not too extreme, but sometimes you go into a, a classroom where there's extreme antagonism towards the gospel by a professor. Well, I want to tell you that changes the environment. And what if instead of us going, man, I'm not going to be in this class because the professor doesn't love Jesus, what if we recognize that God put you in that class, that the environment might begin to change and shift? What if that drew you in to begin to engage that classroom for the gospel as Paul engaged uh, the city of Athens for the gospel? You see this? So this is what he begins to do. And these it names... Um, the Epicureans and the, uh, and the, and the Stoics, right? Uh, these, are just, these are two different schools of thought. The Epicureans pursued uh, pleasure as the chief purpose in life. I think we've got some in our culture today. The Stoics uh, were, were pantheists, uh, but their great emphasis was on um, moral sincerity, right? It was a, it was a very do-good type uh, school of thought. And so Paul engages really, really both of these cultures. And look at verse 17 and 18 again. 
Uh, sorry, going on to 18. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And listen to what their response is. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Anybody ever had that response when you preach the gospel? Sometimes I think that's what you're thinking out there when I'm up here. <laughs> what is this babbler? I'm just kidding. That was a joke. Yeah, that's like, you, okay. That's gonna get, I'm going to get my feelings hurt if I'm not careful here. <laughs> So he says, what, some of them said, what does this babbler have to say? And others said that he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. And watch, watch why. It says, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So this is a, this is a tough balance that we have to hit. And I, I feel this question from you guys um, a lot. And it's really the question of how do I balance being in and engaged in the culture around me and not being shaped by it. Anybody ever wrestled with that line, right? Anybody ever wrestled with, with um, you know, there's, there's, uh, there's some schools of thought that would say um, you're to completely disengaged from the culture around you. Anything that is not godly, anything um, that does not worship Jesus as king, you are completely to, uh, to disengage from it, distance yourself, not go near it, because if you do, uh, it, will, uh, it will harm you, right? There's that idea of culture, is to stay completely away. There's other schools of thought that do the, the exact opposite, that say, no, you're to completely uh, invest in it and in some ways even become like it, right? Blend in as much as you can and use that position of blending in to, to preach the gospel. I don't, I don't believe that it's either, but I think there's a balance that we have, to, uh, we have to understand. And that balance is that first you are to completely be removed from culture. That is a true thing. That as far as what you desire, as far as what you long for, and as far as what you allow to shape and mold you, culture can have nothing to do with it. That job is the job of the Spirit of the Lord. God has said that, uh, that He has given us everything that we need to satisfy us in Him. I spoke with the, uh, with the youth on Wednesday, and I just, I just had them make a list. What are the things that you desire? Like, what are the, what are the things that you, that you need Right, the, the basic physical necessities, the necessities of our emotions like belonging and love and companionship and these things. And we made this long list and I said, what would change in your world if right now you recognize the truth that Jesus can meet every single one of these needs? That's not a cliche thing. That's not just a church saying to say Jesus can meet every one of your needs. He built us, created us, and fashioned us that we would only be satisfied in him. So in that way, we are to be completely distanced from culture in that there, there should be nothing out there that satisfies you in a greater way than Jesus satisfies you. If your engagement in culture is to find some sense of satisfaction, some sense of security, some sense of belonging, then you're engaging your culture in the wrong way. Are you with me? You're engaging your culture for a need. And this culture, and no matter what culture, will not be able to satisfy your need. You're a complex being. You can only be satisfied by him and him alone. However, in your satisfaction in him, you should be drawn to.
to engage your culture, right? So as I'm satisfied in Jesus, as I know that he meets every need, as I go to him for everything, as he is what satisfies my hunger and my thirst, what that should do is go, I need nothing from culture, so I'm going to go engage culture that it might also recognize the satisfaction that comes in Jesus. I'm not afraid of my culture because I'm satisfied in him. I need nothing from that culture, but I'm going to go after it. I'm going to engage it. I'm going to get in it, and I'm going to get my hands dirty because I know that Jesus is the answer to everything my culture is shouting for, right? Do you understand that? There was like two people that said, "Mm mm-hmm. Right, do you see this? You've You've got to be able to look into your culture and understand the cries of your culture's heart. What is it, I mean, just, and the easiest way to do this is watch TV for an hour. Watch TV, seriously, watch TV for an hour and just write down the thesis statement of every ad that you see, right? What is, in essence, what is that ad saying? That's what your culture desires to be satisfied in it, right? That's what, you, that's what, that's what they're saying that you want, you with me? Just, this is just a way to study culture. Look at what they're saying that you want because that's what you've told them you want with your money. That's what your culture is asking for and then go, look, what, it, what is it that my culture is ultimately desiring and then how is that met in Jesus? And I'm gonna engage the culture to that end, right? And this is what Paul does. Paul doesn't, Paul doesn't engage these men and look, Paul is a smart dude. Over and over and over again, we we learn about the knowledge that Paul has. He is a smart man and can go toe-to-toe with any philosopher. But Paul doesn't engage these men because that's what tickles his fancy, is to have an intellectual debate. Paul engages them because he's satisfied in Jesus, and he sees the oppression of idolatry and knows that there's freedom in what he has found. So he engages culture. Are you all right with that? You guys with me? It's so important. We cannot be removed from culture, but we can't be satisfied by it. You with me? Not if you understand. All right, it's April. We're going to make it, guys. We're going to make it. All right, so let's move on. What time is it? Okay. And they took him and brought him to the uh, Aeropagus, saying, May we know that what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing. Listen to this. About, this is just about their culture. Uh, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling and hearing something new. What was their obsession with? The next new thing, right? The next new idea, the next new philosophy, right? The next new uh, piece of understanding. And remember, their aim was to be completely satisfied and enveloped with uh, the life that was in front of them. And so you can, you can see why their desire would always be for something new. Because how long does culture satisfy you? How long does uh, the things of the earth, how long does it satisfy you? Anybody ever run that road of trying to be satisfied by the things of the earth? Yeah? And it doesn't last, does it? If you've ever run on that track before, you know that that is your mentality, is my desire is to now find the next new thing. 
Because what's in front of me only lasts for so long, right? It only satisfies, it's only exciting for so long, and I got to go to the next new thing. And this, is what, this is what they were, right? They were, they were, uh, they were uh, obsessed with this idolatry. They were oppressed by idolatry, and their desire was to, do, was to always have something new. And so what they did is they brought Paul in, and this uh, Aeropagus was a place of, of debate. It was a place of law. It was like a public venue, where they would come in and they would settle some court cases here. Uh, they, would, they would argue um, and discuss philosophy here. And so they brought Paul in and they said, look, you tell them what we're hearing you preach. You say this in a public venue because we're not quite sure what's happening. You see that all this is centered around Jesus and the resurrection. Paul is, is preaching very simply, Jesus and the resurrection. There's something about a dead guy getting out of a grave three days after being dead that's got people a little bit messed up. There's something about this Jesus that people just can't quite put their finger on. Why would God send his son and why would he let him die? Why would he be such a plain man? Why would he be raised from the grave? This is the simplicity of Paul's message and it, and it, it has them uh, asking some serious questions. So they go, all right, this is something new. This is something we've never heard before. Come and speak this um, in, in the public arena. So Paul does, and we're going to see that in verse 22. And this is what um, is noted as that Aeropagus is uh, where it was located. Is uh, The Greek to English is where we get the name Mars Hill. Has anybody ever heard of that before? Mars Hill? There's some churches named Mars Hill. Um, anyway, that's, that's where he is. So Paul's address on Mars Hill is about to begin. And I want you to look at, we're going we're gonna to just break down what he says from 22 uh, really to, um, to 31. And I want you to, to really watch how he preaches the gospel to this culture who knows nothing of Jesus. Remember, this is not a Jewish culture. So Paul's got to approach in a completely uh, different way than he would to a Jewish culture. So here he goes. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens... I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown. This I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. You see how he immediately attacks their understanding of God. So basically what this culture would look like if you were to walk around in Athens at that point, you would see shrine after shrine after shrine after temple after temple to some god or goddess. Because the Greeks did not want to leave out anything, right? They had a god or goddess of everything, and to make sure that all their bases were covered, they even had a shrine to the unknown god in case they missed one, right? They were obsessed with the gods being pleased, and they thought that all of their misfortune was because they had upset one of the gods, right? And whichever god they upset, they had to make right with. They had to figure out who they upset, and so to cover their bases, they even had a, uh, an altar or a place for an unknown God. The story behind that is they were in a, um, in a rough, uh, rough plague, a rough time agriculturally, and so 
they would, I don't know why they had this idea, but they followed this, uh, they followed this pack of sheep, this herd of sheep. And everywhere that the sheep lay down, I guess they thought that the sheep were somehow connected with the gods. And so everywhere that the, the sheep would lay down, they would build an altar to uh, the god that they laid down closest to. Anybody want to live in that world, right? Isn't this crazy? Right? And if the sheep didn't lay down close to any god, they would build an altar to the unknown god because the sheep was obviously laying down next to something it sensed to be god. And if it wasn't close to anything they had established as a god, they just said to an unknown god. Right? Doesn't it sound chaotic? This is the culture, but I'm telling you, look at what you live in. I think it's just as chaotic, if not more so. So this is what Paul is addressing. But what is he saying to them? He's saying the very first thing that you have to understand is you have to understand who God is. And all of what you've guessed at to be God, he is none of these things. God is above what you could create with your hands. God does not live in temples made by man. He is not crafted by your hands. He is not able to be understood by our finite imaginations. God is above everything. And in fact, all things gain its life from him. And he introduces it and he says, I want to tell you about this unknown God. I want to tell you about the one that you're guessing at and that you don't know. Do you see how he uses their culture to preach the gospel? You see how his understanding of the environment he's in enabled him to speak into that environment with the gospel. That's why if you just completely disengage from your culture, you're going to have a very difficult time preaching the gospel there. Paul uses that and he says, I want to tell you about what you don't understand. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. What does Genesis 1.1 say? In the beginning, who? God. What's the next word? Created. So we do this in discipleship school. It's our very first lesson. And we spend about six weeks on it. <laughs> in the beginning, God. He is the only one. He is the only one that is uh, allowed that title. There is one God. He is God and he is only God. And he exists outside of everything. He exists out of time. He exists outside of space. He was in the beginning. He will be in the end, and he is right now. He is alpha, and he is omega. He is high and lifted up. He is the only God. And when asked for, to give an explanation for himself, he just says, I am that I am. There is no other but me. I am God. And the next word in that passage is, in the beginning, God Created. So everything that is not God is what? Creation. There are only two things. There's creator and there's creation. And there's only one that is creator and his name is God. Right? Everything else is creation. And everything else derives its existence from the creator. You understand? No thing has life absent the creator. 
Everything else is creation. This is what Paul has to do first. He has to establish a right view of God. Because how many of you know that if you don't have a right view of God, everything else is skewed? If you don't have a right view of God, look, even you as believers, if you don't have a right view of God, your Christian life will be skewed. If he is not who he says he is in you, then the way that you live and associate with him will be off in as much as you don't have a right view of God. And so the very first thing that Paul establishes with them is a right view of God, and he tells them, you cannot create him with your hands. That all life has its existence from him. And we gain our existence, right, by him. And so this is pretty cool. We're going to go in, uh, in verse 26. And he made from one man every creation. Uh, sorry, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. Having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. So before we read that next place, what he's he's saying is that not only is God outside of our ability to create, but that God is sovereign, right? He's saying God created everything that you see and all life gains its existence from him and he has set everything into motion. He has given the boundaries of existence. He has set everything into motion. And he says, um, he's allotted uh, periods in the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him, right? He's talking about this desire for us to know God. And then he says, yet he is actually not far. uh, Sorry, I'm not reading well. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us for, and then you see this in quotations, In him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. So this is really cool. So Paul actually uh, quotes a guy named uh, Horatius. This is a Greek poet. Paul quotes him. He says, In him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Now why can Paul do this? Why can Paul point to culture? Why can Paul pull a poet out of Greek culture and say, this is evidence to what I'm saying? Why can he do that? He can do it because there's this fundamental thing in all of us that desires to know God. Right? There is this, there is, we are hardwired, and he speaks of it earlier in the passage, but we are hardwired to pursue after God. You don't have to look around long to know that. How many different theories and theologies are there about God? How many different theories and theologies are there about where we gained our existence, about what preceded us, about why we are here, right? They're everywhere. Why is this? Because man desires to know his creator. And so this poet is just... In his natural man, he's writing after the longings of his heart to know God. And Paul pulls this out and he says, do you see that even your own poets are speaking of their desire to know God? You guys with me? So he uses culture to say, even your own culture is screaming to know God. Even your own culture recognizes that it gains its existence in him. 
Again, this is why it's so important for us to be discerners of our culture, of of our environment, of what's around us. And he says, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the heart and imagination of man. So he says, if this is true, if we are actually in existence because of God, then we've got to know that he is not a created thing by our hands. You see this process of logic. If God exists outside of everything, if we are his offspring, if we gain life in him, you guys with me? Are we going to make it? Right? Eight minutes, we're going to make it? If we gain our life in him, then it's impossible that we can create him. Right? That it's impossible that we can fashion him with our hands because we gain our existence in him. So what he's just done is he's brilliantly used their culture to prove God. See, that's, what, that's what's so beautiful about God is that there is nothing that can disprove him because he is. There's no thought process. There's no imagination. There's no, there's no way to disprove God. In the end, everything points to him. Everything under the sun points to God. Everything finds its origin point in him. And this is what Paul uses with these men. But then he makes an intense statement. He says, uh, being then God's offspring, we ought to not think that a divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the heart and imagination of man. He says, the times of ignorance God overlooked But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by the raising uh, of him from the dead. We know that he is speaking of Jesus. At this point in the conversation, they, they, uh, they cut him off. They hear again of this resurrection, they cut him off. We don't know what else Paul was uh, actually going to be able to say. We don't know what private conversations he had afterwards. They cut him off. But I want you to see uh, in verse 30, let's just try to understand this. There's different thoughts on what he said. He says, the times of ignorance God overlooked. Some versions actually say that God winked at, which is kind of strange. (laughs) So the idea being he passed over, right? He understood. Now, there's a few options. Uh, Obviously, Paul is speaking to a Gentile world, not a Jewish world, okay? And so when he says this to a Gentile world, there's there's really, you got to kind of land on one of these two options into what he meant uh, that the times of ignorance God overlooked. I'm just going to give you both of those options, and then we're going to land on where Paul really landed on. The first option is that as God watched uh, in the Gentile world, God watched idolatry rise and rise and rise and rise and rise and rise, that God became jealous uh, of their uh, desire to pursue idols, even though God, you know, they gained their existence in him. And so that time where uh, idolatry was rising in the Gentile world over a period of thousands of years, God was jealous, and this is where God would have been overlooking. But he kind of hit a threshold where God said, all right, enough is enough. Jesus is sent, and now everyone is accountable to this Jesus. Paul speaks of that, but now, right? 
after that statement, but now is the time. That's option one. I don't, you land where you, where you want to land. I, I don't love that option. Uh, I don't love that option. I think it paints a, a, a strange picture of God. I think it paints a, a strange picture of his, um, his patience, and I believe it creates a reaction from God. And I don't really believe that we see a reaction much in the heart of God. He's not a reactor. Jesus never reacted. He's sovereign. We don't throw him off in our idolatry. Here's the other option. I don't know that I love this one either, but it's closer than I believe the first is. That God has great patience. And he, in his sovereign process of time, knowing when he would send Jesus, God left the Gentile world alone in idolatry until an appointed time when he knew that he would send Christ. That in his perfect justice, God knew of this period of time before Jesus when the Gentile world would not have the prophets, would not have the scriptures, and and that was just accounted for in God's perfect sovereignty and justice. Right? It's another option. Again, I like it better. It paints a little more clear picture of his overall character and nature, speaking of his patience, his sovereignty, and his perfect timing. Um, but that's an interesting statement that Paul makes. However, that's not the thrust of his statement. I don't want to miss the thrust of his statement because what he says is that either way, however you line up from, you know, with how God dealt with the Gentile world before, either way, it's all changed now because God has sent Jesus who has been crucified, buried, and resurrected, and now the standard of judgment has been set. Listen to what he says. He says, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Who's excluded in that? No one. He says, all people everywhere must repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. Now, he's going to judge the world in righteousness, but he's also given us a standard of that righteousness. He says, by a man whom he has appointed. Who is that man? Jesus. The reason that there's no longer an excuse of ignorance is the standard has been set. Jesus has lived. We have seen the standard of God on display. Jesus being the fulfillment of the law, the law being the standard of righteousness. If Jesus completely and perfectly fulfilled the law, then we have seen what it looks like to meet the standard of God in the flesh. And there is no longer an excuse. You guys with me? So Paul says, because Jesus has come, God has set the standard, and he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So if you thought for a moment that this Jesus was an anomaly, if you thought for a moment he was a prophet or a good man, if you thought for a moment he was a philosopher, then think again, because this man died and was raised. Any idea or thought that Jesus did what he did in his own power was crushed by the resurrection because no man can raise himself from the dead. The person of Jesus was attested by God, the scripture tells us, by miracles and signs and wonders and ultimately by the resurrection. 
And they freak out when Paul says this, and they've heard enough. You can read the last few verses. We don't have time to read them, but that's it for Paul there. We don't hear that he goes again. There are a few converts. There are a few people. He even names a couple. One is actually a member of this council, this Aeropagus council. If you were appointed to that council, it was a lifetime appointment. It was something of high stature, and one of these men uh, believes in Jesus. But the emphasis that I want you to hear today, I mean, we went through a lot of things. There's a lot in this, a lot in this passage. But as we approach uh, Passover, which I hope that you go tonight, um, and Resurrection Day, we've got to realize that the thrust of the gospel is in the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead. If we preach a gospel that has no resurrection, we have not preached the gospel. And over and over and over and over and over again, you see these men turning the world upside down. And the simplicity of their message is this, that Jesus is the standard. He is the savior of the world. He is the standard of righteousness. His life requires your repentance and God raised him from the dead. He is the real deal. But Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. I want to tell you, you see that as clear here as you're ever going to see it. That the moment that Paul spoke of death, burial, and resurrection, those who are perishing said, you're out of your mind. And you will get that reaction. But because you get that reaction, you should not go, man, I must be preaching something wrong. I must be saying something wrong because they're not responding the way that I feel like they should respond. Your, your, um, your preaching of the gospel should never hinge on the response of man, ever. Because it's not your job to convert a man to Jesus. It's your, God, your job to preach Jesus. It's your job to preach the death, burial, and resurrection, not your job to save. That's his job. That's the job of the Holy Spirit to bring a man to salvation. Your job is to stand in the gap and tell the truth. Preach the truth in your culture. Don't be afraid of your culture. Know that you're satisfied in Jesus and engage your culture with the simplicity of the gospel that says Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He has been buried, but he has been resurrected. He is the standard of God. Repent, turn. There is life in him. That's the simplicity of our message and we should not waver from it. Especially amongst the mockery of those who, uh, who do not believe that there is a resurrection. If we move from the resurrection, we've moved from the gospel. It is such a simple message, but it is so, so, so powerful. Amen? God, help us to preach the truth. God, help us not to waver for the approval of man. Jesus told us that if we seek the approval of man, then when they clap and when they applaud and then when they approve of us, we have our reward in full. And God, we all know in this room how long the approval of man lasts in our heart. It is for just a moment. So God, 
Turn us from that desire to be approved of by man. Turn us from that desire to be satisfied by man. May we in this room collectively at once right now be satisfied in you and you alone. And in our satisfaction in you, may we preach the gospel, not compromising a word of it because the gospel is life. God, help us to preach the truth. Amen.
Amen. You guys are dismissed, not released. No life groups this week. Uh, yeah, you heard the announcements. I don't know why I'm saying them again. See ya.